0: Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am having a little bit of a vulnerability hangover based on last week's episode. Did you catch it? It was a listener Q&A episode that I did with my friend Amy Smith. And it wasn't the listener Q&A episode part that I'm having the vulnerability hangover about. It was, we spent the first 10 or 15 minutes talking about poop. And I was like, oh my God, did I actually put that out there? Did I put that out there? And alas, I did, but I think it's going to be all right. But I was having a little bit of a holy shit moment. No pun intended (laughs) with that. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, speaking of listener Q&A, episodes, those are some of my most downloaded episodes. I plan on doing those once per quarter. And if you are a part of my Patreon party, as I lovingly refer to them as, you are able to submit questions for those listener Q&A episodes, as was the listener who submitted them for last week's episode. If you don't already know, I have decided to drop all sponsorships and advertising for the show and just be listener supported. The podcast will always be free, but this is a way for the show to still be supported because it takes a village and it is expensive to have this here podcast. So you can pledge as little as a dollar per episode. So all I ask, if I have ever entertained you, if I have ever made you laugh, even talking about poop or (laughs) giving you value of any kind, hopefully there has been some in personal development, I ask that you hop on over there, check it out. Out, see if it's for you. There are 3 different tiers and each one comes with its own bonuses. For instance, there's one particular tier where you can, like I was mentioning, submit your questions for listener Q&A episodes. There are also bonus podcast episodes that I put out every month where I talk about Things that I'm learning in my own personal life, as well as books that I'm reading that are rocking my world or teaching me things, and podcast episodes that have been really helpful to me. And I also do monthly AMA video calls. That's Ask Me Anything. You really can come to these video calls and ask me anything. If you can't make the scheduled time that we do them live, no worries. You can submit your, your AMA question, and I'm happy to answer it. And the recording gets dropped within a few hours. So all you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash YKAL and of course that link is in the show notes. Okay, so this is one of those episodes. Using air quotes over here. One of those episodes that is a little, um, how do I put this? A little deeper, uh, probably will touch close to home for many of you, whether you struggle with depression in your own life personally or you know and love someone that does. I feel like this is one of those topics that touches so many people's lives. And I've never brought it to the podcast. I am by no means an expert in this. At all. If there's any topic, I really am like, I don't know. I need to bring somebody on who can talk about this better than I can it's this one. And so I met Dr. John Duffy when I was on my book tour and he is so smart and so articulate and so kind. And I love his energy. Uh, He and his wife were so incredibly helpful to me when I went to Chicago for my book tour. They helped me. I was really in a bind and they helped me find a babysitter. They were really amazing. And I knew that I wanted to have him on the show to talk about this as it is one of his particular specialties. So before we jump into the podcast, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. John. Along with his clinical work, Dr. Is the author of the number one best-selling *The Available Parent*, as well as a frequent media presence. He was the regular parenting and relationship expert on Steve Harvey for five years. He also appears frequently on other national and local television and radio outlets, and is cited frequently in national print and online publications. These include *The Today Show*, *Fox Good Day Chicago*, *NPR*, *The Huffington Post*, *The Wall Street Journal*, *Redbook*, *Time*, *Good Housekeeping*, and on and on and on. So many things that. you all would recognize. I don't need to read them all. So without further ado, here is Dr. John Duffy. Dr. John Duffy is here on the podcast. Hello, how are you? I'm great, Andrea. How are you? I think we are the two most excited people this morning on the face of the
1: (laughs) earth. I think you've got something there. I think that's true.
0: Oh, I know. And everyone already heard before that I am really excited to talk to you because I loved our conversation on your podcast, which I will link to in the show notes because I I do of the 70 plus interviews I did during my, my book tour, yours was absolutely one of my favorite favorite.
1: Oh, thank you so much. And you were an amazing guest and so fun to talk to and such good energy. And I love your book, by the way.
0: Oh, thank you. Yes, I love yeah. writing it and I love that people loved it. It's already been, gosh, seven-ish months since it came out. Time flies, as they it say. It does. <laughs> but I, I want to talk about, you know, as I was I was saying, and when, you know, when this finally comes out, it will have been a few months since we there were two celebrity suicides in the news and just mental illness as a whole, I think is becoming a bigger conversation within the general public, which is such a great thing. I'm sure yes. you agree. And that's oh, yeah. the reason I brought you on today was to talk about this very tender topic. And, and I know you you know have personal experience with this and as a professional, you know, in your career and your personal life. So Let's start from the beginning, because just to kind of give give my listeners and you a quick backstory, this topic is incredibly close to my heart. My father, and I cannot promise y'all I can get through this episode without crying, but most of my listeners know my father passed away in October of 2016, and he struggled, I'm pretty sure, his entire life with anxiety and depression. I did not know about it until... Um, my parents got divorced pretty much like five minutes after I graduated high school. So I knew then that it had been a problem, which I was unaware of. And my dad was also a high functioning alcoholic, which I also did not know, because he hid it very well, which many high functioning alcoholics are good at. And when he got sober, right after my mom left, he went into checked himself into an inpatient treatment center for 30 days. And very soon after that, confessed to me and my mother that he struggled with depression, which at that time, very, very newly sober, and he was in his fifties at that point, the depression was exacerbated as sometimes that Mm -hmm. happens when people are newly Mm -hmm. sober and his anxiety. And I, as an 18 year old young woman did not understand any kind of mental illness, did not know anyone who had mental illness and was, I had the mentality of, I don't, I hate to say this, but it was almost like an I don't believe you because I didn't understand it. And sure. it was something I couldn't see. I mean, this was my father and mm-hmm. was really under the impression of you need to just get over it and you need to just suck it up. It pains me so much to say that out loud. But honestly, I was so afraid of what it was. Um, And he had hidden it so well. So yeah. and I know I'm not the only one who has either been in that position before or he's, he may, might still be. So can you talk to us like anything at all that's sort of jumping out to you or, and, or can you talk to us how depression might show up in people's lives and what does well, that look I'm, like?
1: Yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad you were willing to share that story and thank you on behalf of your listeners and myself um, for being open enough to share that because I think that's how a lot of us feel when someone we love is depressed. So Uh briefly, what depression looks like. And there there are about nine or 10 diagnostic criteria. And in order to qualify for the diagnosis, you need to be four or five of them. Uh Effectively, here's what you're looking for. You're looking for a pervasive length of a sad mood, not because something happened, but really because nothing happened, you know, and and you feel it anyway. And, And you'll notice in somebody who is chronically depressed that they can't really enjoy the stuff that they typically enjoy their functioning is disrupted they don't concentrate the way they used to they don't eat or sleep the way they used to but the thing i so, so so there's a number of things thinking about suicide and thinking about death more than most of us do feeling guilty feeling worthless having very low self-esteem the thing i look for most andrea just to cut through all of that is if i'm sitting across from somebody who feels no hope Uh Uh, cannot tell me what their future looks like in in a positive way other than, you know, geez, it just looks grim. It just looks dark. It feels like more of the same. If that's what they're telling me, I know that I'm sitting across from somebody who is depressed. And to your point, oftentimes people don't seem it. So like your dad, I I work with an awful lot of people where, uh, and I've been doing this for 25 years, but I'll look at somebody sideways because they present so well. Some people are so good at putting on a good face and faking good. And, you know, because they don't want their, their people to worry too much, or they're just used to coming across a certain way and they don't want to seem depressed. Some people are so good at that, that they don't really show these symptoms, they just feel them. And that that's when it becomes kind of a little more dangerous because we can't really help them. We don't even know they need help. Mm-hmm. That's right. what concerns me about somebody who is depressed and really skilled and somebody who's been depressed a long time, like your father, it sounds like your dad was, and I know my dad was oddly enough. That's a, a little frightening because you know, they're not getting the help they probably need and just suffering for a very long time needlessly. And, and the inclination for a lot of us is, oh, you're, you're fine. You know, I can tell you've been fine this whole time. So how could you, how could it be worse now? You know, our inclination for a lot of people is to try to talk them out of it because the people we love, we don't want them to be depressed. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah.
0: That's tough. And it's, you know, it's really interesting that it almost, and I, and I, I personally have, I've struggled with anxiety with chronic anxiety in my late twenties and it's sort of intermittent now. And I've, I've learned to, to deal with it and just sort of surrendered to it, which has helped me a lot, Mm -hmm. but I have never struggled. I, I feel like I dodged that bullet, you know, with depression. And what's interesting is I've talked about this on a previous episode is when and i've had situational things happen when i got divorced and things were shitty but that <laughs> yeah. was it was circumstantial i i really believe And when I did the, um, it's supposed to not be a diet, but like, let's be honest, it's a diet. I did the whole 30. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's this, it's like an elimination (laughs) thing where you eliminate pretty much everything except lettuce, desperation and fairy dust. And (laughs) (laughs) no, I, it was, it was a big change in my diet. And I was, it's for, you know, for 30 days and I got to about day 14 and I woke up and didn't like had this weird mental fog kind of sadness. And it lasted for four days. And I realized, oh, this is what depression is. This is mm. it. And it was, I talked to a naturopath and she said, I'm not at all surprised that happened. You basically like threw your hormones in reverse sure. because right. of this massive diet change. And it could have depended on your cycle and things like that, but that's what was happening. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I have such compassion for people who struggle with that, who it's chronic. And I I just cried every single day and cried because I couldn't snap out of it. And it just, it broke my heart to know that people really struggle with that. And, and my dad as well. And I think my next question is how can, how can we support someone who's struggling with depression? Cause I know you mentioned, obviously it's not helpful if we say you seem fine,
2: yeah. <laughs> you know, right, so right, right. what do
0: you say to that?
1: Yeah, so so it it does not help to say you seem fine. It doesn't help to say, "Come on, you know, just, just shake it off. You're you know, you can do this. I know you can." Um, it is never that easy. To your point, when you describe what it feels like, when I sit across from somebody and they're really in the midst of it and talking um, letting go of all the pretense and letting the depression take the floor you can feel like, oh, I can't talk this person out of it. What they need is an ear. They need somebody who they can share it with. So if you are close to somebody who's depressed, the mandate for you isn't to fix it. It's to hear them out. Because oftentimes when we're suffering something like that, nobody gets it. Nobody understands. And so if you can get somebody um, to listen to you, you know, depressed people are eager for this. And once they get going, trust me, they will continue to talk about it. And that alone, just telling the story, this is who I am. This is how long it's been going on. This is what it feels like to be depressed. And I have to tell you, like, it is not an easy story to hear. You know, it, it's a, even, even hearing the story of your four days where mm-hmm. we knew this was time limited. That's a tough story to hear because, you know, you're a very upbeat person and we don't like to think that you're suffering.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, so, and it doesn't even hold a candle to, to people's right, lives.
1: Right. So if you're willing to listen to somebody's full story, the full scope of it, how, how dark it gets for them. Then they know, okay, I've got a partner in this, and somehow that feeling of not being alone lifts the hopelessness just enough. Be- and, and and honestly, like as a therapist that works with people who are deeply depressed, sometimes bearing witness is the best therapy. There are you know cognitive behavioral therapy, changing what the way we think and the mm-hmm. things we do are important. Sometimes medication is really important, but the thing that makes the most impact, honestly moment to moment, day to day is I, I hear you, you can talk to me about this. There is no taboo between you and me and you can have your say and that's going to be okay. You know?
0: Yes. Yes. So much yes to that. And my next question is, I guess maybe sort of a question on boundaries because the experience that I had with my dad and, yeah. And, okay. So I went through this thing after he died, and you know, because selfishly, I had you on this podcast because I want to ask you about my life. (laughs) But I do think
1: podcast, Andrea.
0: (laughs) I do think this this might be helpful for people. So what happened was. I will never forget this conversation I had with my dad towards the end. It was just a few months before he got really sick. And I had gone out there to visit him and my brother was helping my stepmother out of the car. And so my dad was standing in the Mexican restaurant and it was he and I, and I'll never forget it. He was, he wasn't facing me, but he turned his head to the right to look at me. And I said, cause I had asked him, how are you? How are you Really? because my dad always really struggled with talking about his feelings. And as I, when I got sober seven years ago, you know, he and I started just to scratch the surface with some bigger conversations. Yeah. And he turns to me and he says, the depression's really bad. And I was in that moment as his, I mean, cause even as I'm in my forties, we never stop being the children of our parents, right? Like right. in that moment, I just was like, devastated on so many levels and thinking to myself, what the hell do I say in this moment? How do I help him? And I could not spit the words out to say, what can I do? I think I might have said something like, when was the last time you had your meds checked or something like that? Sure. But then, and then we didn't have a chance to finish our conversation because, you know, our other family walked in, but then here's second part to that story. After my dad died, and it was maybe a couple of months later, I got a package in the mail that was not, didn't have a return address. And um, my stepmother, what she had done is she had kind of put a bunch of things in a box as she moved out of their house. And it was very sweet of her um, that she didn't throw it away. <laughs> she sent it to me, but in her rush, I think my stepbrother right. was helping her. In her rush, she didn't put a return address and just mailed it to me. And so I was not expecting this package. I opened up this box and it was it was all the cards that I had sent him over the years for Father's Day that he had kept and pictures and my report cards from elementary school and, oh. and all these pictures that I had never seen, some of them from my childhood of me and him. So here I am weeping, looking through this box. And then I find a letter that was mailed to him when he first had checked himself into rehab and it was from his best friend. And his name was Jerry. And he actually came to visit my dad the day before my dad died. And I was glad I got to see him. It was my dad's best friend for decades. And it was a typed letter from 1992. And he was he had mailed my dad this letter and basically saying, um, because my dad's best friend's wife had committed suicide because she was depressed. So he this my dad's best friend was saying, hey. I'm here for you. Please open up to me. And it was this heartfelt letter between these two men. And I'm sobbing reading it. And I oh. dropped it. I dropped the letter midway reading it like it was this hot potato. I'm getting goosebumps now telling the story <laughs> so am
1: I. <laughs> I dropped
0: it because I was like and gasped out loud because it was the realization of the humanity of my father. Yeah. And and getting a glimpse of his adult friendships and because that's weird, you know, like when we see our parents as – not our parents, like as the, hum- the humans for what they are and all of that. But with rem-
1: all of that dimension, Ugh. right, and even that – that despair. Oh my God. Just that
0: despair and, and getting that glimpse that I was not prepared for in that moment. And I just sat down and just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, feeling so terrible for the pain that my father had gone through back then, you know, twenty some years ago. And then I remember calling my friend and I'm getting to my point here, calling my friend and saying, what could I have done? I felt I had so much regret over feeling the need to be a better daughter, through his depression. And my friend who, and she, this particular friend has struggled with depression herself. And she said, I honestly don't think it was your job. Mm -hmm. And she said, I think he was probably trying to protect you all of those years from his pain. And so that's, I kind of, it's a very vague question. And I think it's a question about boundaries between parents and children and things like that. What do you, what do you think about all that?
1: yeah I, I love the question andrea and and um and I so appreciate your vulnerability here because I think it's really helpful. I'm gonna an- answer your question, and I think other people will relate to it. Most of us know and love somebody who's depressed. Here it was such a close relationship. it was your dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and as pervasive as depression is, it's not necessarily constant. You might have been a person that made your dad happy just to be around. And I'm just listening Mm -hmm. to your spirit and I'm thinking, eh, it's hard to be depressed around Andrea. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs)
1: Um, And so I agree with your friend. I don't, it's definitely not your job. The only, the only person who can lift themselves out of depression, just like addiction, as you, as you know, or even anxiety, you know, is that person themselves. We can, we can be there. We can listen. Uh, there, there, there are a lot of things we can do. Tell me your story. But there is a sense of boundary there, too. If your dad had swung the other way and overshared with you, and I deal with this all the time, at some point, I tell my client if, they're, if they've got a loved one who talks too much about and, and overshares and tries to kind of download their depression uh-huh. onto them, You can't be the bearer of that, you know, like that's that is going to take you down like like a sinking ship. You've got to have some boundary there and let this person know, you know what? I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified, nor am I interested in fixing this and working this through with you. I don't know how to do that. You've got to talk to somebody. With the right degree, you know, and the right experience, uh-huh. who can walk you through that? I can help you find that person. I'll listen if you need me to, but I feel over my skis here. So don't ask me to fix this for you, and don't talk about about it with me constantly because I can't be the fixer. I'm too close. I, I would say that you know I've been doing this for a very long time, but if this were my wife, who was deeply depressed, I would say, Julie, you know what? You got to talk to somebody about this. I can't be that person. I'm too close, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And, and that's important for us to realize because so many people who are connected to people who are depressed feel this pervasive guilt, like, Oh, I should have known I should have done something about it. And that's virtually never true. You know, like the, the best you can do is say, you know what, let's find somebody who can help you. Let's get the right help that you need. Um, but some people who are depressed, my younger brother was depressed before, before he passed away and he took his life 15 years ago. Mm. And, um, and he would never show his hand, you know, like, and there was nothing that any of us could do other than when something got desperate, we could call a hospital and say, well, we need, we need an ambulance. It's a, it's a nine one one moment. Um, but, but short of that, I think the best we can do is listen. But if we feel like, ooh, this is taking me down too, you know, that doesn't do anybody any good either. Yeah. So, you know, what my, my my press is always like: if you know, then find somebody who can help because you, you if, if you're that close, you can't be that person.
0: Yeah, oh, I just my first thought when you were saying yeah. all of that is like that has got to be probably one of the hardest things people do is say, I can't be, I can't be your solution. You need to find somebody.
1: Yeah, it's brutal. And, um, you know, I see, I see it with, um, and here's where it gets so sticky and difficult with parents who have to say to their teenagers, you know, like I can't be your person. I can, I, I can be your parent, but I cannot be the person who solves this for you. I don't know how to do that. I can, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to find you the right people, but you, you can't keep laying this on me. Mm-hmm. I've got to find somebody else who can help. And it is, it is torturous. What we're, the thing we're not saying that I feel inclined to say here is the remarkable thing about depression that's changed, Andrea, since I've been doing this gig, uh-huh. is that it is treatable. Like, in other words, the therapies that are out there work. And the medications that are out there are so much more uh, effective than the ones that were available 25 years ago, you know, where we were just trying to piece something together. So I've worked with people who were devastatingly depressed and on the verge of suicide. And they have with the right therapy, with the right medication, the ship gets righted in, in this kind of very elegant uh, way and, and they are okay. And that doesn't mean they're never going to feel that again, Mm -hmm. Uh, because there's nothing just like the anxiety that you suffer and that I suffer. We know like, "Mm, that, that could nag us any moment of any day. They could knock at the door any day. Yeah. I just let it in. Depression (laughs) works the same way. But if you, if you, if you have the tools, just like with anxiety, if you feel like, I have the tools to find that thought that can carry me out of this space and there are tools like that for people who are depressed. Do you know what I mean? There's yeah. like there there are these lighthouses out there of of thought. And if you can if you can find that through the haze of depression, then you can make it through. You know, like you can you can make it through those those times in a way that I think 25 30 years ago you just simply couldn't do. So I'm thinking about kind of heartbreakingly, your dad in 1992 and the options available to him in that 25, 26, 27 years, the difference between what was available to him in that moment, then even if he were willing to seek a, a, all the help that was available is so different mm-hmm. than what's available to people now. Yeah. So I, I don't want people to feel hopeless listening to this, like, oh my gosh, you know, this is just r- a r- devastating
0: disease, r- mm-hmm. right?
1: And it, and it can't get better because it absolutely can't.
0: Yes. I've, I've seen people completely come, you know, make a full 180 and, yeah. and heard such great stories too. And it sounds like too, it's a maintenance, it's maintenance. It's not just like, I found the perfect medication. I'm going to be good for the rest of my life.
1: definitely It's paying attention. Yeah. Mm. It's paying attention. And, and don't, I always tell anybody I'm working with who's depressed, don't give medication too much credit and don't blow off therapy or coaching or whatever yeah. else helps you verbally. And cognitively and behaviorally, it doesn't mean, you know, do not sit on the couch and just, you know, watch the e-channel and, and expect <laughs> the depression to lift because <laughs> it will hang with you. Even yes. with the best, the best medication out there, it will hang with you. It will It will haunt you. So do the things you love to do and press the matter. You know, like yeah. if it's like, I usually like riding my bike, but I'm just not feeling it today. Doesn't matter if you feel it, just do it.
0: Just do it anyway. Do what's yeah. it's great for you. Yeah, yeah, and and I have found personally with my anxiety that I it's less mental for me now, like it was before, but it's more physical symptoms. So I, now I know, you know, it's like no more coffee. Even though I do want another cup, I just don't don't yeah. drink it. Yes, if I have to cancel appointments, I have to cancel appointments, and I exercise. Like those are just a few of the many things that I know now what works for my body for my physical symptoms.
1: Right. So that's awesome. So you pick up on these cues, right? Yep. You know, your body really well, you know, your mind really well. And if you pick up on the cues, you respond appropriately because you learn from experience. Like, okay, I know where this is headed. If I have another, uh, another cup of coffee yep. or if I don't exercise, or if I take on too many clients and you know, I is hit what a it wall. Is.
0: Shit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a I have learned <laughs> from experience that, that not listening to my body and just doing whatever I want, it's just a disaster. It's not worth well, it.
1: That, that applies to uh, depression as as readily as it applies to anxiety. That's mm. perfect.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, why do you why do you think that the U.S. is seeing? And I'm not super familiar with the stats. So, is it the U.S. that's seeing an increase in suicide rates more so than other countries?
1: Yes. Yeah. By, by, uh, it's actually striking. Um, the the CDC, Center for Disease Control, uh, came out with some statistics recently. And uh, in the last five years, there's a third more suicides and about a third more incidents of depression. And that's a lot. Wow. Um, yeah. And um, in both statistics, curiously, Um, women are two to three times more likely to suffer either, uh, well, men are more likely to commit suicide. Women are more likely to be depressed by twofold or more. But the increase in the incidence is something that that, that fascinates me. And what we are able to tie that to more than anything else is the nature of the stimuli we take in. First of all, relative to 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, we take in a shit ton more stimuli than we used to.
0: <laughs> oh, I would absolutely agree with that.
1: Right? And, and, and an awful lot of it, I was talking to somebody recently who stated this just beautifully. He said, whereas we used to have a screen and we would get the news from it and we might get some comedy and we might get some drama. Now, a lot of what we take in, we play against our own sense of self-worth and self-esteem. And so, you know, the number of likes we get on yeah. social media or, you know, um, how thin this person is comparison. or, you know, a lot of, right, all these comparisons mm-hmm. that we can make, you know, uh, even reality TV is almost like this kind of constant comparison that we make. So almost anything we're looking at at any screen at any time could play into a negative sense of self-worth if we're, if we're looking at it that way. And a lot of us in America do. There, one theory that I kind of subscribe to is that we are a wealthy and comfortable enough nation that we have the luxury of doing that, which sounds, which sounds so horrible.
0: <laughs> it's it's, but it's one of those sad truths. I think. Yes,
1: right, right. If we yeah. were just like, let's we were be honest, you couldn't do it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I and I love this this conversation, and I'm always very interested in the reality of the stats. But I want to interrupt you for a second and ask about this side, sidebar, because I'm very interested in um, women and alcohol, and mm-hmm. we're also seeing an increase of alcohol consumption in women. We see an we're seeing an increase over the last decade of DUIs with women, but we have not seen an increase with men, yep. and. I cannot remember off the top of my head, but the, the stats are staggering when it comes to women and alcohol over the last few years. And I won't go on a rant about why I think that is marketing, um, but do you...
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you're ahead of me. You're ahead of me on that one. Yes. God, it
0: makes me so mad. <laughs> but do you... I mean, it's kind of an obvious question, the correlation. Yeah. And what do you what do you think about that?
1: Yeah. So um, I, first of all, I think, I think you're onto something with marketing and with kind of... Um, the The mass media portrays I read, I read a great article about this, portrays women as like kind of almost automatic wine drinkers. they 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 cited scandal, where uh, I don't know if you've ever watched this show. Yes. I have not watched it a lot, but apparently, when Carrie Washington is not working, she's drinking she a big a glass of red glass wine, of wine right? Yeah. You know like, yeah. it's a big, big fishbowl glass of perfect, red right? wine. yeah. and and so there there is this kind of idea that you know when women are off the clock, They they're drinking wine, you know, and this is this is um, uh, alleged to be a norm. I think that's not all there is to it. I think it's um we're, we're in such an interest. I think you and I may have talked about this when we talked on my podcast because I think we're at this really interesting time for gender dynamics. Women, in particular, you know, like there's this there's this renaissance going on where women have this voice in our culture right now that. That I really don't think they had before. Women didn't were, weren't able to speak all of their truth before, but we're not there. there. there's there's a place we haven't arrived at yet. And so I think this probably is frustrating. there the The idea of equality, is not something I think anybody could argue we have fully achieved, whether it comes Uh to like the wage gap or, um, just the sexual dynamics, even in the workplace. And so I still think it's a very, I, I think women end up, uh, swallowing a lot of the difficulties that they suffer. And, and still women are kind of girls and women are brought up to be caretakers. So, um, you more than I were probably brought up to take care of people. And if you are having a hard time, well, that's second Mm -hmm. to, you know, anybody else in your family else's
0: troubles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I
1: think that, and, and, and so the idea of, you know, something readily available to take the edge off some of the anxiety and depression affiliated with that alcohol is kind of a natural Go to there, you know, Um, and until those dynamics change, I worry that that's not going to change.
0: Yes, I think it's that. And I think, you know, this could probably be its own podcast episode, because I also feel that what has happened is, yes, you're right. I think we're in this era of, you know, with the Me Too and the Time's Up movement, we are finding a voice with the political nature that we're in right now. People are, whichever side you're on, people are more inclined to voice their opinion. And women now more than ever are kind of feeling like this fist pump and and all of that. And right. I think that what's being marketed to us is that well, we deserve this. Oh, well, look how hard it is for us with all this struggle and inequality. We need this break, and look at how right. much fun we can have because that's I mean, like all y'all probably know this listening, but what we're being marketed to is this sort of like fun, hipsterish <laughs> mom, especially with moms. I think we are marketed to differently. And yep. I know that people have meetings about this. I know that there's, there's alcohol <laughs> companies where they specifically have meetings and I hate to say, it, but it's probably a bunch of dudes. They might have like some female focus groups where they give them yeah. all the free wine. i clearly, yeah. I have feelings about this, but I just, I think that we're being lied to that we, in order to have this great life, that it's, it's being marketed the bottom line is it's being marketed as cool and fun and hip and it's anything but that, you know, we're seeing this massive yep. increase in addiction and DUIs and accidents and, and all of these things. And, and, you know, and I would even argue, you know, you mentioned like, uh, you know, when they're off the clock, they're drinking wine when they're on the clock,
2: they're drinking right, wine. Right, right, I, That's I, I was right. that person. That's
1: true. Yeah. yeah. Well, and do you think part of it has to do with um, this idea that, that I I think goes back, you know, a generation or more, this idea, that, oh, you can have it all, yeah. you know, like you can be a mom and you can work and you can, you know, um, look awesome and, you know, be as skinny as you want. Mm-hmm. It, it, you should be able to do all this. And so I think women put all this undue pressure on themselves to be everything to everyone and kind of perfect. Yeah. Um, and And there's there's these comparison points out there you know um, i've i've worked with women recently who have said the worst thing that's happened in their adult life is instagram yeah. because they're they're looking at the, the the women they follow on instagram are women who look and seem perfect and uh, you know like they're able to go out shopping and hang out and do pilates and, and their yoga and the yoga right the
0: goddamn <laughs> their yoga
1: <man> <laughs> right and 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 it's like Shit! I can't even get my kids, you know, like to clean up, uh, you know, the, the Legos mm-hmm. in, the, in the house, and mm-hmm. and I uh, and I can't get ten minutes of work in without being interrupted. What am I doing wrong? You know, like so. I hear a lot of that from women. I hear a lot less of that from dudes.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> I often think, oh my gosh, there. I have many moments during the week where. I'm either having a conversation with a client or a friend or seeing something in a Facebook group that I'm in. And I'm like, if this were a bunch of men, this, this would never be an issue or a conversation. Right. But, and I also want to backtrack, this is nothing against yoga people that do handstands. I know you're out there and I love you. Love <laughs> I just, you. I, had fo- I wrote about this in my book. I followed too many of them and I had to unfollow because it was making me feel like shit about myself and my, is that right? my non bendiness. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> right, right, right. I love them. All right. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, parenthood because I know that this is something you specialize in, and, and not yeah. all of my listeners are parents. But I, I do want to touch on this. What is the best way to go if someone is suspecting that their their child might be struggling with depression or another form of mental illness?
1: Yeah, um, you you talked about your dad and how um, how terrifying it is to and, and heartbreaking it is to see that your dad is suffering from depression. The only thing I know that's more heartbreaking than that is to watch a parent recognize that their child Mm -hmm. is suffering. Um, It is absolutely brutal and the inclination and it's a pretty natural one. It's a very understandable one is, you know, if, uh, if in a therapy room, so this happens in my office across the hall, I, every week, Andrew, I'm telling you like where, um I'm thinking of this one young 17-year-old girl in particular who is beautiful and brilliant, and I'm crazy about her. She's awesome, but she's um sad, lonely a lot of the time. Um boys don't seem interested in her. And what what mom's inclination to do, which I totally understand, is to say, Oh my God! They're so missing out because you are beautiful and you are awesome yeah. and you are brilliant. And and effectively, what this girl is hearing, unwittingly for mom is, I can't handle your pain. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna I'm talking myself out of it. You yeah. know, I, it's so brutal for me to hear. Right? Mm-hmm. I, and this is really hard for parents. So the tricky thing is to sit in that muck soup with your kid mm-hmm. and let her say the words. Because kids kids are more buoyant than we are in, 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 a, in a funky way. If, if you let them say the words, the treatment is pretty simple after that. They kind of buoy right up once they recognize somebody hears me. Because so many kids don't feel heard, are so afraid to say the words. You know, like I, I have sat across from, I couldn't tell you how many kids who are crying already before they say they're depressed, just because the words feel so potent. And it feels like such a life changer. You know, when you're 15, 16, 17 years old, it feels like, uh, oh my God, this is, you're going to throw me to hospital. Things are never, ever going to be the same again, even if I'm not happy with the way they are. So it's terrifying to them. So for you as a parent to come in terrified doesn't help. It, it and, and yet, And yet you're going to be terrified. So to the extent that you can put that on the burner and say, okay, I'm going to breathe through this and I'm going to be strong for her. We might cry together, Mm -hmm. which is fine, but I'm not going to collapse because she needs somebody to lean on, you know, my, he or she needs a person to go to when this therapist isn't around or when this psychiatrist isn't around or, or, or their best friend isn't around. And, um, and they, so you need to listen to your kid when they say they're lonely. You need to listen to your kid when they say, I don't think people like me, or I don't think I'm that smart, mm-hmm. uh, or I don't think I'm good looking. I think I'm hideous. I think I'm awful. I think I'm ugly. I think I'm unlovable. Kids say Ugh, this. Yeah. yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, and that's usually, that's the darkest part of it. That word unlovable, when you distill it all down, it's stunning to me how much this generation feels unlovable, stunning, but it happens all the time. And they need to know that somebody's willing to hear that.
0: Mm -hmm. That, I I mean, you want to talk about the hardest moments of parenting. You just described it. (laughs) I know there's so many. I love, have you ever read Brene Brown's The Wholehearted Parenting Manifesto?
1: Oh my God, it's 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 my Bible. <laughs> yeah,
0: I just want to read one line from it because please because it's it points exactly to that. It's kind of towards towards the 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 end, and it says, "Together we will cry and face fear and grief. I will want to take away your pain, but instead I will sit with you and teach you how to feel it." Oh, and I remember well, the very first time I read that, I have that printed out and framed. That whole manifesto. We'll we'll link to it in the show notes for everybody. That part I was like wait a minute. No, I want you to teach me how to take it away for them. <laughs> yeah,
2: right, right, right.
1: <laughs> but, but, but in the end, I think Brene's suggesting in there, that's not they don't need that. You know, yeah. I believe it or not, your job is simpler than that. Um, it's harder, but it's simpler um, because all you have to do is sit in that muck, right? You know, I'm going to teach you how to feel it. Oh God. I love that. That just strikes me <laughs> so deeply yes. as like the perfect The perfect advice for parents, right? You know, um, and it might feel like it takes you off the hook. It's still really difficult to do.
0: So difficult. I, and I, and I, I remember the, I think it was either last year or the year before that, my, my kids are in, they are rising third and fifth graders. So they're still very little, but my son had come home and gets in the car and, he, something had happened at school and he told me the story that he had spoken up in class and said the wrong answer. And he said, and everybody turned and looked at me and I felt like the stupidest person in the world. And I mean, that's just one example of things, you know, that he's come home with and tells me. And in that moment, I was like, Oh my God. You know, like, first of all, tell me where all those children live so I can go and have a talk with them about how to look at you. <laughs> I'm going to go in and talk to the teacher. <laughs> Maybe we yeah. should just pull you out of school and homeschool you. That might be better, you know, <laughs> I, that all ran through my head. And at the end of the day, what I, I took a big deep breath, I, this did not come out of my mouth right away. Cause of course my first reaction was, I wanted to say, oh, that's not true. You're so smart and remind him of all the ways he's smart. And what I said was, <laughs> I said, I know exactly what that feels like. Mm. And what, I'm kind of in this for the long game and the way I think about it is, I, cause I know that this is just going to get harder for them when they're teenagers and someone breaks their heart and all of these things that are going to happen. I want them to come home and tell me as much as I don't want them to tell me,
2: (laughs) I want
0: them. I want to be the person that they come to. So they don't just go in their room and shut the door and don't talk to anybody. And that might happen on occasion. I'm, I'm very aware of that, but I, I hope that they trust me enough that they can come to me so I can hear them and bear witness to their pain. Cause I didn't have that. I didn't have that growing up.
1: Yeah, you didn't?
0: No, I was, I grew up in a house where there was a whole lot of love, but if you had any other feelings besides happiness, go and do that in your room on your own. And when you're done, come out and we can have dinner. <laughs> yeah,
2: it, was just,
0: it was very much a sweep it under the rug family, which I know yeah. is very, very common.
1: Yeah, yeah, I had one of those. <laughs> uh, and I
0: vowed not to do that with my children. As painful well, as it is, and as uncomfortable it, it, as it is, that's yep. how I vowed I would parent.
1: Well, and there's more... I, I love your story. I love it and and I appreciate you sharing that because I like i the parenting the long game is so easy to forget in the moment, yeah, but oh, yeah. we need to parent the long game because when we have third graders, fifth graders, my son is twenty two parenting's a a life sentence, yeah. and they're they're always going to need us to to be there and to bear witness in that way. and if you If you parent the short game and you parent to your sensibilities and your anxieties, um, you are going to cut something short in your child. And it is so much harder to piece together as they get older. It's doable, but it's harder to let them know, hey, I'm here, I'm available, and we are good. Mm -hmm. It's It's hard to show them that when you've shown them something else. So when you start young and you let them know, I know just how that feels, just what you said, you know, like, even if you say not another word, it's kind of a revelation, like, okay, mom gets it. Thank God, man. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, right. Somebody hears me like in the, uh, in the giant echo chamber of my mind here, that's brilliant, brilliant. And that's really, that's the key. That's the key to parenting period, but that's the key to parenting through depression and anxiety too. And, and here's the cue to most any parent listening your children are likely to have bouts of both. You know, mm-hmm. like this is none of us gets through here clean. And that might seem like horrid news, but sometimes for parenting, these are our best moments. These are the moments that like gel and solidify our relationships with our kids more than this is the grand Canyon. Check it out. kids. Yeah. You know? yeah,
0: yeah. Big Ben. <laughs> the stuff We think, we're gonna,
1: <laughs> we think are going to be indelible and, and important are probably very different than what our kids are going to hold on to. I bet your guy 20 years from now is probably going to have some memory of the moment you just shared with us.
0: I'm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. just hearing him and not making him wrong for feeling the way he felt. Cause I think ah. that that's easy to do too. Inadvertently right. by telling them like, no, you're not. Like you're, you're smart, you know, and, and yeah. it just is, can, can be confusing. I think as someone who's learning how to navigate the world of feelings and emotions.
1: Terribly confusing. It, may, it makes it feel like, oh, I'm doing it wrong or yeah. I'm feeling it wrong or I'm the only one. I must, there the must be something one. really wrong with me because I'm the only one. Mom's telling me I shouldn't feel this way.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. <sighs> Yes. That's the lesson is like, and I've, I've articulated this to my children. I've said this several times on the podcast. What I tell them is you are allowed to feel however you feel, but you're just not allowed to be nasty to us. So yeah, that's good. that's like, you know, don't telling me to, you know, there's going to be consequences if you tell me to fuck off, if you just keep slamming your door. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I'm trying to like, and of course I do it very messy, instill boundaries. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, you're allowed to feel, you're allowed to be mad at me. I tell my kids all the time.
1: Yep. And parenting is messy like that. Yeah. Where but but I think it's important to put limits on things and, you know, behaviorally, you can You can talk to me about it. You cannot be disrespectful to me or to anybody else.
0: And if you are, you're going to need to
1: clean it up. Yeah. Yeah, That's what I'm trying.
0: I'll let you know how it goes. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I I suspect it's going to go pretty well.
0: (laughs) I hope. I hope. Well, I I have loved this conversation and I have a couple more questions for you, but we're just going to have to have you on again because I know we need to wrap up.
1: Oh, I love that.
0: Thank you so much, everyone. The Undo Anxiety podcast with Dr. John Duffy. Go out and subscribe and listen to everything he's ever said. He's been on the Steve Harvey show more times than Steve Harvey has, I think at this point. (laughs) Go listen. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Hey there, Ask Kickers. When I was recording this episode with Dr. John, I looked at the time and knew that he had a hard stop. So in my rush to get off the line, I completely forgot to do what I normally do. And that is thank you so much for listening. I know how precious your time is, and I am so incredibly grateful that you choose to spend it with me and my guests. So thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And until next time, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.